Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team. You as a congregation, y'all are sounding nice today, so I appreciate that. It's always great to come and to sing. Music really does, as I mentioned a little bit last week, music serves as a bit of a catechism for us to help us remember truth, to help us remember scripture. Some of these songs are taken directly from various scriptures, and I'm so thankful for our team that serves us so well each and every week. We are going to be in Psalm 78 this week, Psalm 78, and we're going to look at roughly the first half of this psalm this week. This is actually the second longest psalm in the collection of psalms behind Psalm 119, 72 verses, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 39 this week. This is a psalm that's reminding us not to forget, not to forget what the Lord has done, not to forget his grace, not to forget even the bad examples that have gone before us in the past. You know, memories are really funny things, aren't they? It's funny the things that you remember and the things that you don't remember. I know for me, I always overestimate, at least I used to, I've kind of learned myself now, I overestimate my memory and think that I'm going to remember things without writing them down. That typically doesn't work out for me. Some of you that does work out for. It's amazing though how you can think back even if I had you do an exercise this morning and ask you what's the earliest memory that you have in your life? The earliest memory, some of you may be able to reach all the way back to maybe even two, three, four years old, something in that ballpark, probably. And there's probably some minor detail of something that you remember. Isn't it strange how memory actually works? Some seemingly insignificant thing will lodge in our memory, and then something very important, incredibly obvious, that you think you'll never forget, sometimes we forget. I know I do this. And we get things on our mind and we have trouble remembering things people tell us. That's why many of you come and talk to me on Sunday and you'll tell me something that you need me to do. And I've learned over the years to say, I'm not going to remember this. You need to text me, email me, or contact my much, much more responsible administrative person in the office, Leslie. Don't contact David. That would probably do about the same as contacting me. Money's a memory, it really is a funny, funny thing. You'll forget all kinds of things, and then a song from the 90s comes on, where's my generation, and we all remember suddenly. This is why it's so important to continually put the important things back in front of us, again and again and again and again. That's why we come together on these Sundays. Every Sunday that you come into church, It's not going to always be, oh, well, I've never heard that before. I never knew that those verses existed. Sure, we hope that you gather some things, maybe pick up some things that you haven't seen before or learned before. But really, it's a ministry of reminding. That's what Peter said in his letters. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you. It's safe for you, actually. And so we come to remember. And so many of the Psalms are these songs that are recorded for us so that we remember what God has done. This is one of those psalms. It roots itself in history. And just by way of uh, a point of what the Bible is doing here, I think it's important for us to note that it's important that these events actually happened. And so Christianity is historically rooted, as we've mentioned many times here before. It's important to know that these things actually happen. They're not just myths. They're not just some tale that helps us explain life. These are things that actually happened. And so often the Bible roots itself in history, and these psalms reflect on God's work throughout history. 
And so today we're going to see this psalm, this long psalm, and it's, this one's kind of unique in that the psalm tells us a story and gives us some application in verses 1 through 39, and then the psalmist basically does the same thing in verses 40 through 72, and so we're going to do the same with the psalmist. We're going to look at verses 1 through 39, and then we'll pick it up next week. He sort of starts over. Let me start this talk over, and he tells them again about Israel and tells them about their rebellion in the wilderness. To put this in historical context, this psalm is not given to us exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly how it was used in later temple worship, but from some things, some clues in the psalm, it probably fits somewhere in this ballpark, and I'll explain that as we move throughout the psalm. So I shared this timeline before, and these dates are not precise. Uh, you could, you could uh, dial these in a little bit tighter, but just for general flow of thought, it helps me to think of these big markers and even numbers. So Abram, Abraham, is somewhere around 2000, and then Moses and the Exodus event, somewhere around 1500. The Exodus event, most people date to 1446, if you want a little bit more precision on that. That moves us into the period of the judges, and so I don't have that on your timeline but that would be between the Exodus when Israel goes into the land around 1400 and then into the time until Saul is established as the king and then eventually David, Solomon, and then the kingdom splits after that. It's somewhere in that ballpark that this psalm probably comes to us. And we know this because of a few things. There's mentions of David. It's said to be a psalm of Asaph, who's one that comes after David and sort of stands in this transition between David to his son Solomon, uh, establishing the monarchy. And it's probably coming either right around the division of the kingdom, or it's uh, maybe perhaps just before or just after the division of the kingdom because of some geographical markers and the mention of Shiloh that we'll get into a little bit more next week. So just to put it in context for you and remember uh, where we are. All right, so let's move along. A simple outline here for you this morning. Verses 1 through 11, we're going to see the call to remember. And so these verses serve as an introduction to the psalm, and we'll spend a fair amount of time on that, and then we'll see the events that we are recalled to remember. The call to remember. Let's read it. I want to read down through verse 39, and then we'll come back and look first at verses 1 through 11. A maskal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, and incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget his works, the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the waters stand like a heap. 
In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he give us bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he led out of the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in their midst of their camp and all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Now you'll notice that's a long reading and a lot of verses dedicated to remembering God and his plan. And what you might notice here in verse 40 is he sort of starts back over again. Verse 40 says, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And then he goes back into the Exodus event. And so that's how this particular psalm works. He tells the story calls them to remember, tells the story, and then retells the story, drawing out application all along the way. So let's look first at this call to remember. This call to remember. As we've mentioned already, this is something that we do often. We remind you of the things that you know. We tell you the things that you need to know. We remind you of the gospel, the message of the cross, again and again and again. Last week, I talked a little bit about music and why we sing the songs that we sing. Today, I want to talk a little bit about children's ministry here at Sunrise and remind you and maybe let you know why we do what we do. In our children's ministry, we can, you can sort of, in a, some of you who are educators, you'll appreciate maybe some of this, thinking through this together. Children go through stages, and some people in the classical education model have talked about the different, three different stages of development. Have you ever noticed that elementary kids, especially the super young ones, they have no problem with repetition, the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over 
and over and over and over again. <clears throat> if you've got toddlers, you know how that goes. They'll have a favorite show, a favorite song, a favorite bedtime routine, whatever it is. And they just want to do it again and again and again and again. This is how kids are wired. They're wired to drill the stories in. They're wired to get the information in. And so what happens is when they're really young, you drill the information in, and then what happens somewhere around upper elementary, middle school, they start to take that information and they start to wield it against you as a parent, right? <clears throat> Dad, you've taught me all this information. Now I'm going to show you your inconsistencies with this. I'm going I'm to leverage you. I'm going to, some of our jujitsu people, you're going to take their, their, you're going to take their blow and you're going to kind of counter it. And they, they start to learn how to take information and form arguments. And so this is happening in the upper elementary middle school days. You get to the high school and then on to college days, and you're, you're learning how to take all that information, take those arguments, and express it. So now you're writing, you're speaking, and you're learning how to form and create arguments. So this repetition, rote memory, then learning, forming up your arguments, and then learning how to express that. That's kind of how kids develop. This early days, you're just drilling in information, and that's why we think it's so important here's a church family, to put the information in, get the stories of the Bible. And this is exactly what's going on here. Verse four, we'll not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And this continues on and on and on. Kids love repetition. When we were moving, this was back uh, years ago, back in 2007, when we were moving from California, where I was in seminary, we are moving back to Alabama. <clears throat> My oldest at the time, her whole little world was all in upheaval, as you can imagine, as we're moving and everything's transitioning. And as we drove cross country, the only thing that kept her sane and made me partially insane was... Elmo, the Elmo videos. Any parents my generation out there, the Elmo voice, ooh. And these were the DVD days before everybody had their own kind of personal thing, headphones. And so we, we had this on loop, just again and again and again and again. When we finally got transitioned into our new house, we threw the Elmo DVDs away. <laughs> like, no more. This repetition, though, putting the stories in is so important, so important for kids. And this is exactly what we try to do. And so this is a responsibility of parents for us to teach the next generation. Deuteronomy 6, we see here that you teach your children and they teach their children. You, you have this idea of generational faithfulness that gets handed down generation after generation after generation. Praise the Lord, he's also given us a church that can help with this. Don't get me wrong, we're not the replacement. We're not a replacement for what you do as a family, but we want to help. We want to be a guide. In fact, if just the way our children's ministry works, there's a lot happening over in the next building that maybe many of you, you know there's a building over there, but maybe I've never actually like walked through it. If you start in kindergarten and you go all the way through fifth grade, through our children's ministry, in the nine o'clock hour, your kids will actually go through the entirety of the Bible. They will go through all of it. Uh, and so we're just trying to help and assist and doing these verses here to teach the next generation. It's our responsibility as parents, and we certainly, as a church family, want to help as much as we can with that. This isn't just a kid's thing, though. It's obviously a responsibility for us to learn of the Lord, to learn what he's done, and to pass this down generation after generation. 
This is why we offer different types of teaching here at the church. So we have our Sunday morning. We're going through books of the Bible. We're fairly predictable. We're in Psalm 78, first part this week. It'll be the next part next week. After that, Psalm 79, and we just continue on. We're doing our Summer in the Psalm series. In the fall, we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke. So we teach books, verses of the Bible. In our nine o'clock, what we do is we offer different classes And these classes are based around kind of three general categories of teaching the Bible, Bible knowledge, equipping classes, and then uh, theology and or history. So we're wanting to build you as disciples of Christ and to learn and to pass this down generation after generation. So this is what we do. It's a very important ministry and work, and we're just trying to be faithful to what we see here. Notice, though, it's not simply to learn information. Education is never just about what you know. It's about the person you are. It's about formation, not simply information. Look at verse 7. Why do they do this? Verse 6 has told us that the generation may know to the children even unborn arise and tell their children. Why? So that they should set their hope in God And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. There's the payoff. That they would keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. Not be like this rebellious generation. You see, we're not just trying to learn information. There's not a Bible quiz as you walk out the door to see if you got it all today. That's not it. The issue is obedience to the Lord. That's always the issue in the scripture. James 1.22 But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can be the king of Bible trivia, but that does not mean your heart is obedient to the Lord. It's not simply a matter of information. Information is important, but that's not the whole. And so now what the psalmist does is he gives us a bad example. There was a tribe named the Ephraimites. Look at verse 9. The Ephraimites. So notice what he's doing. He's calling on us to remember. He's calling on us to pass down the stories of God's faithfulness, generation after generation after generation. And now the Ephraimites, armed with a bow, they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So here in verses 9 through 11, he gives us an example of a group, a tribe that didn't get it right. Let's talk a little bit about the Ephraimites. It's an important group of people. So Ephraim, it's a little bit of Israel's history here. Ephraim and Manasseh were both sons of Joseph. Joseph was promised a double portion of the inheritance when the land would get parceled out. But this comes through his kids. So you have the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. But what happens is when they go into the land and receive the inheritance of the land, the Levites don't have, they're one of the tribes, they don't take their own land because the Lord says the Lord God is their inheritance. So they don't actually have deeded property there. They're the keepers of the, of the temple and they are to live off of the generosity of the rest of the group. That's how the system was set up. So then you don't have the Levites, but you do have these two Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, who both receive an inheritance. That's why they're sometimes called the half-tribes, because they're the sons of Joseph. 
So it works something like this when you uh, look at the, the way that it broke down. This is laid out in uh, Joshua and Judges. So this is Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was at some point unfaithful in battle. Now, we don't know exactly when this story took place, but it would have been something familiar to these people. The Ephraimites, they were armed with the bow and they turned back in the day of battle. So they didn't uphold their responsibility. So the various tribes, sort of like maybe a NATO alliance type of thing, they were responsible if their fellow tribe, if somebody else was under siege and they were being attacked and they were responsible to go to their defense. Well, at some point Ephraim didn't do that. And so now they're called out for that. Now what's interesting here, I can do a little, uh, yeah, there we go. So Ephraim is right here, all right? Uh, Ephraim's right here. And then Jerusalem is right here. Now, what's going to happen is after the kingdom splits, the kingdom's going to split right through here. Ephraim and Manasseh both end up in the north. Israel is, is called Ephraim, uh, is, is the land in the north. Judah is the land in the south. And so what's going to happen is this is an important city right here, Shiloh. Shiloh was the old capital of, uh, of, the, uh, of Israel, and the capital ends up moving down to Jerusalem. Sort of like originally the capital was in Philadelphia. We eventually built the land in D.C., moved the capital. That's what happens. So Ephraim and Manasseh, they're unfaithful, and eventually that's pulled from them, and the capital becomes Jerusalem later. And so this is how it works. Jeremiah 7. This is later. The prophet is reflecting on this. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. That was the place we were just talking about, the old capital, where I made my name dwell at first, not anymore, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. Ephraim becomes sort of a, a story. Look, hey, this was supposed to be the place. It's not anymore because of your disobedience. And so Ephraim is important. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Ephraim royally blows it. And they end up being one of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, which is a little more history than we can get into today. But Ephraim becomes an example of don't do it like Ephraim. Don't be like them who abandon their brothers in the time of battle. So a call to remember. Well, what are we supposed to remember? Now what the psalmist is going to do is walk us through various things that we are supposed to remember. First, we see the acts that God did. Look at verse 12. And this goes back to the Exodus event. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. So you'll remember that God made promises all the way back 
in the book of Genesis, made a promise to Abram, changed his name to Abraham, that you're gonna have a lot of descendants and they're gonna eventually have their own land. It's gonna be this land, but you're gonna leave, you're gonna come back. And then we end the story of Genesis with this big family who ends up migrating down to Egypt, which would have been to the south of where Israel currently sits, kind of following the road down, to the, down along the Mediterranean. And so they're in Northern Africa there. And the, they grow like crazy. And so for about 400 years, the people, they multiply and they multiply and they multiply just like God said they would. They eventually become a threat to the Egyptians and they think the Israelites are gonna outnumber us. They're everywhere and so they enslave them. They're no longer welcome guests. They're now slave labor. And it's through this that God makes a promise to Moses that I'm gonna use you to bring them out of the land of Egypt and back to the rightful land that they own, the land of Israel. But the people had forgotten this. They had forgotten the works that God had done. What are these works that God did? We can look at this in four different movements here. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and in the fields of Zoan. Now, you'll remember that it was through God's miraculous ten plagues, as they're often called, that God eventually gets Pharaoh to relent to let the people go. Now, here's what's, what's really interesting about how all this breaks out. After they leave, look at verse 13. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the waters stand like a heap. And so we have a description of the Red Sea incident, which we, uh, a few years ago, we did a study of Exodus here at the church. Many of you will remember that. We talked quite a bit about this. And this becomes the deliverance event. So if you want to talk about deliverance, redemption, God's work in the Old Testament, you talked about the Exodus. This was the key event. And so what happens is when Israel leaves, and they leave the land of Goshen, which is where the little arrow starts right there, there was a road that went right here. So they're here. Israel's up here. They want to get, they want to get right up there. Now, there's a road that goes that way, okay? Now, if you're Pharaoh and you're watching this, you know the Israelites, you finally let them go, you would imagine they're gonna get on the closest road and head to the land. But what do they do? They go exactly the opposite direction. It's amazing. And so they go down here and then they go up here and this, this line could actually be a little bit more uh, scattered than this. And then what eventually happens is they get entrapped somewhere here, uh, somewhere in this area. We don't know exactly where the Red Sea crossing took place, but could have been a few different locations. But regardless, Israel walks themselves into a trap. And, they, and so Pharaoh finally says, hey, um, we never should have let them go in the first place. Y'all go round them up. And that's my translation of what's going on here. Exodus 14. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. They don't even know where they're going. They don't even know there's, there's like a highway. You, you could have just jumped on Interstate 10, but instead you're like down in Ocala, like trying to get, you know, out to Tallahassee. Like, what are you doing? Why are you going over there when you're trying to get over here? Pharaoh's getting reports back. What are they doing? Where are they going? And this massive group of people, and they're going exactly the wrong way. And he says, never mind. You guys aren't bright enough to be on your own. You need to just come back and be my slaves again. And so he sends his army out. Well, this is all part of the plan, though. 
for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, so they've walked themselves into a trap. They walked themselves into the least strategic spot that they could possibly get in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is exactly what happens. And Exodus 14 tells us the rest of the story of the Red Sea event. And then Exodus 15 is a poetic reflection. And so God uses all of this to deliver them. He delivers them here at the Red Sea. So this is how the Lord operates. Verse 14. After this, where are we going now? You'll remember they didn't make a direct route. In fact, God said, I'm gonna bring you to Mount Sinai and you, you have to learn how to be my people first. And so for about a year, they, they stayed there and listened to the Lord and they received the commandments from the Lord. They built the tabernacle. You have to learn how to be my people before you're heading up into the land. Now each day after they began this, the Lord was with them in a very visible way. And the psalmist is reflecting on that. Verse 14, in the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. This is Exodus 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Now, it's so interesting. They did not seem to make any sense. And especially when Israel gets into the days of their wandering in the wilderness. The Bible tells us that sometimes the cloud would be there for a while, maybe a few months. Sometimes it was a day. And so Israel camped around what would become the tabernacle, the presence of God, and when the cloud was there, they stayed. When the cloud lifted up, they knew it was time to break camp and move. And the Lord did this for them. But yet the people forgot They forgot about the guidance of the Lord. They forgot about the Lord providing. So he guided them and he also sustained them. And the psalmist is reflecting on just a wealth of biblical history at this point. So in the daytime, he led them with a cloud. So he's talking about his guidance. And then he also provided for them. Verse 15, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out from the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. You'll see that when Israel finally goes out, they don't have enough water, and they're really concerned about this. And I have to admit that I find a little bit of uh, identification with Israel in that. I'm never far from my water bottle. Many of you aren't either. And not having water on command is is pretty disturbing for the people. And so I think for the psalmist, he's thinking, how could you not rely on the Lord? I think for many of us, we can find a little bit of identity here with the Israelites. What are we gonna eat? Those of you who are really planners and like to kind of have it all like mapped out before you you go on a trip, you got, you know, books of things that are written and we're gonna stop here and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do this and do this you probably would not have loved this period of Israel's history. Where are we going today? Well, we'll see if the cloud, we'll see where the cloud takes us today. What are we gonna eat? The Lord will provide, don't worry about it. What are we gonna drink? He's gonna bring water from the rock. Now, that's a real exercise in faith, isn't it? And many of us probably would not have done great with that situation, but this is what it was. 
And so the Lord brought, he's teaching them to learn independence on him. This, this whole period was a test before they go into the land. And many of them did not pass the test. Numbers 20, this is a negative story actually. When Moses does strike the rock, he was supposed to speak to the rock at this point. This is the second incident of this. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank in their livestock. So we have these recorded stories of Moses bringing forth water from a rock. Rocks don't produce water. This is the provision of the Lord. We see this the first time in Exodus 17 and the psalmists and poets reflect on this incident. God is providing for his people in amazing ways. So what do we remember about the Lord? We remember how he's acted in history. But we also are called to remember that the people didn't get it right. Look at verse 17. Yet, even though, even though in verse 12, he performed these incredible signs in Egypt, even though God opened the sea and drowned the army that was pursuing them, even though he led them with a cloud and a fire at night, even though he brought them food, they still sinned. They still complained. Verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They wanted the familiarity of Egypt. They wanted things to go back to what they were. As we talked, Nathan led us a little bit this morning. We were talking about some of this in our equipping hour. They wanted the old ways. So how does God respond to this? God's response is gracious and yet there's judgment embedded in this as well. Therefore, the Lord God, when he heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob and his anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. So even after he saw all of these things, even after the people saw this, they still complained. And we know how the story goes, pressing forward in the Exodus story. They have to wander for 40 years what should have been an 11-day journey, should have been from beginning to end, from, from uh, the, uh, Egypt up to the land, should have been about that long. It ends up taking 40 years because they rebel against the Lord and he causes them to wander, causes the young generation to die off. And yet the Lord is gracious. They want meat. God says, fine, I'll give you meat. Verse 26, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out of the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. That's such an interesting verse. I laugh sometimes about verses that we don't typically put on our walls at, at the house. He rained meat on them like dust. If you're vegetarian, vegan here this morning, that might not be one that you want to put on your walls. He rained meat. He gave them what they wanted. You want meat? Fine. He had already given them the manna. says, I'll give you that. And gave them quail, as much as they could handle. He's gracious. He's kind. He responds. We see finally God's grace in all of this. See, this is going back and forth. He gave them what they craved. Verse 32, 
We have this continual pattern God provides and yet they rebel. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath. In their years in terror, he talks about the judgment that happens, but then we get the graciousness of God here again in verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Yet he, being compassionate, God remembers their frailty. He remembers that they are but people. And he's gracious and kind. Aren't you thankful here this morning that God does not give us everything that we deserve? Imagine if God held you to the same standard that you hold everybody else to in your life. How would that day of judgment go for you? The expectations that you have for everyone else, God is gracious. We see this exemplified, of course, most of all in the person of Christ. He took on flesh. He understands human frailty. He's our sympathetic high priest who can identify with us in our weakness, in our suffering, in our temptations. Romans 5 and verse 8 But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing in us to attract God's love. He showed his love for us that while we were sinners, he died for us. Same still holds true for us here today. He being compassionate, he atones for their iniquity. He covers their forgetfulness and their sin. Praise God for his word. Praise God for his gospel. This morning, in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and our musicians are going to lead us in a song that we haven't done in a while here. This is one from our study of the Exodus um, a few years ago. And this song traces the history of God's faithfulness through his covenant, through the message, and through the way that he worked in Egypt. So I encourage you to just think through this one as we sing it together. It's got some energy to it too, so you will enjoy that. It'll send us off on the right note. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this time that we can spend together today. And Lord, we find ourselves much like Israel. We know your works. We know that you are trustworthy. We know that you've never failed. And yet, like Ephraim, sometimes we cower back when things get hard just like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for so long because they didn't trust you, they didn't believe in your provision, they didn't believe you. Lord, we we find ourselves in the same place. And so while it's easy for us to look and say, how could they? They saw these wonderful things that the Lord did. How could they not believe? We also find ourselves in a very, very similar position today. So Lord, we pray that you would help us, help our hearts grow us in our faith. Lord, maybe there's some in here this morning that don't know you, who have never repented of their sins and trusted in you as their Savior. I pray that you would use your word, show them their need to be atoned today, their need to have their sins covered, their need to have their guilt taken away. So Lord, we pray that you would use your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.